As we've already mentioned, Jonathan Rourke, our pastor, is coming home from Paraguay. He's been ministering down there uh, at a pastor's conference, and uh, he should be home this evening. And I have the privilege and honor to preach the Word of God today. And the Lord had put on my heart uh, the passage from Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, the Fishers of Men passage. And I thought, it, I thought it to be appropriate because John has already preached on the Ascension, then he preached on uh, Pentecost, and then last week on the Great Commission, focusing on the Trinity in there. And I thought today would be a great text, a narrative, at, uh, looking at the ministry of Christ and the opening of His ministry and the calling of four disciples. And today's sermon is titled, Fishers of Men. Okay, right out of the Bible. By way of an introduction, I want to ask, how many of you have seen the TV show Deadliest Catch? Yes, many of you. Uh, for years, when it first came out, I, I watched it fairly regularly, and, and Jill, my wife, didn't really understand why. But I like, say, honey, do you see the adventure? They're risking their lives, the danger, the Bering Sea, and it's cold, and, and these ships are getting overrun with ice and, and rain and huge waves, and all the while they're catching crab and fish, and, and it's adventurous. It's exciting. I'm just glad I'm not there right now as I watch it on my TV screen. But nevertheless, the suspense is when they go to grab one of the pods and they're bringing the pods up and as soon as they get it above water, they are waiting to see if they have any kind of produce that they've caught. And if there's a lot in there, then they celebrate and they know they're going to make a lot of money. But then other times the pods will come up and they'll be empty and, and they'll be so discouraged and devastated. And I thought, that TV show is a lot like evangelism. There are some great similarities between uh, evangelism, sharing the gospel, and fishing. Uh, sharing the gospel can be very exciting. It's adventurous. Often I will have opportunities to share with people, and I will already assume in my heart that they're going to respond a certain way, and after I share the gospel with them, they respond totally differently, and I'm surprised by that. Sharing the gospel is hard. Uh, it can be endless. It could be tiresome. It can be discouraging when people reject the truth, um, and in many parts of the world, it's very, very dangerous. If you were to share the good news in China, the good news of Jesus there, you would be risking possibly your life or even going to prison. Same with Iran, same with parts of India. All over the world, it is extremely dangerous for Christians to share the good news about Jesus Christ. And so the parallels between evangelism and fishing are there. How many in this room love to fish? You would consider yourself to be a fisherman, okay? Josh, I'm surprised by that. Most athletes love to fish. You do not, okay. Well, I remember, you know, one of the realities for dads when they take their children fishing is that dads, you do not get to fish when you go with your kids, right? Your role is totally different. You're not there to catch fish. You're there to fix all the problems that the kids create. 
by way of uh, the line getting tangled, the reels getting jacked up. They're, uh, when they cast, they get their lures caught under rocks in 10 feet of water, or they get their lure caught in the tree. And so you're spending all your time just fixing problems. And I remember when my dad took me fishing as a elementary young boy at Lake Chelan, Washington, and he was teaching me how to cast. You know, you have a lure on the end of the line, it's got three hooks on it with barbs, which I guess are illegal these days, but nevertheless, there were barbs on there. And he would say, son, you bring the pole back, you press the little uh, trigger, and then you fling it, and there it'll go. So I said, okay, let's try this. And my dad was standing behind me. I bring it back, I have about three feet of line, and then I cast it, and I noticed Where's my lure? And immediately my dad is screaming my name and I look back and I had caught his ear, his earlobe. And he's bleeding and uh, he, he's like, Jonathan, Jonathan, I can't get, I can't get it out because there was a barb. So once it goes through, and I thought to myself, dad, you are the vice president of a conservative Christian college. You cannot have pierced ears. That is not appropriate. You have to have a lot of patience to be a good fisherman. John Calvin says this concerning the name fishers of men. He said, fishers of men was the perfect metaphor for the preaching of the gospel. This was indeed appropriate for men stray and wander in the world as in a great and troubled sea till they are gathered by the gospel. Please turn to Luke chapter five. And I want to read the first 11 verses, and this is our text today. This is God's holy word, Luke chapter 5, 1 through 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they ended a large number of they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets began breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. The first point of today's message is this, if you're taking notes. Salvation starts with God's initiation. Salvation starts with God, not with man. If you look at chapter 4, verse 42 and 43 and 44, right before chapter 5, 
you will notice that Jesus has been already traveling around and he's preaching the gospel. Verse 42, and when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Jesus was sent by the Father to preach the good news of salvation. Early on in chapter 4, Jesus was tempted for 40 days by the devil, and afterwards, he starts his three-year ministry at age 30. And this is where we are in the text. Jesus is just now starting his ministry. And we know that the theme of the book of Luke is this, that Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. His mission was to pursue lost sinners. We know, those of you that attend here regularly, that man is dead before God, spiritually dead. We have no ability to get right with God. We have no power within ourselves to get right with the Creator. And therefore, because we are sinners, we are lost. We have no ability to find the way, if you will. And therefore, God must seek, and He seeks by sending His Son. Jesus Christ. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave or sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 19, the apostle Paul says, for God reconciled us to himself through Christ. Namely, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God was in Christ, sends Christ to reconcile those who are enemies of God. That's you and I before we were saved. Romans chapter 5 says we are enemies of God, and therefore we are not friends. We need to be reconciled. Well, who initiates the reconciliation? God does by sending His Son. And now God has commissioned us who have been reconciled to go and share the ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.18, God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors. We are his messengers to go and make disciples. And the point at the outset is this. Like our Lord... We as believers should be initiators in the sharing of the gospel. Salvation starts with God. He sends. He saves His uh, children. They become believers in Him. They become the carriers, if you will, of the gospel. And now it's our responsibility to initiate and share. Let me ask you a question. Have you had that moment where you're with somebody that doesn't know Jesus And in that conversation, there's an unction that happens, a prompting in your heart to say something spiritual or to say something about the Lord Jesus with that person. Have you experienced that? What do you do in that moment? Think about this. Is it Satan that is stimulating you to to share the good news? No, because Satan is not divided. He doesn't want you to open your mouth. And we know it cannot be your flesh. Often, the Lord has prompted my heart to share, and I have found a way to not share. I've worked it out in my mind that, oh, I don't have enough time, or these people, they don't really, they're not going to want to know the truth, and therefore, I do not share. 
And that's what the flesh does. It suppresses the gospel and the sharing of the gospel. I believe that when you are prompted or your heart is pricked to say something spiritual about the Lord Jesus and share the gospel, that it is the Holy Spirit and you need to obey the Holy Spirit in that moment. You need to step out in faith. It's not you that came up with that unction to share. It was the Lord. And therefore, He's initiating and we need to initiate the spreading of the gospel. Second point here, salvation comes by the hearing of the gospel. The hearing of the gospel. So here we have the living word, Jesus Christ, preaching the written word, if you will. And the context is that crowds are already starting to follow him. He's already becoming famous. One, he's, he's been already known to be a great preacher and teacher. Many are viewing him as a prophet, but he's also now healing the sick. And therefore, he's drawing large crowds. And that's the context here. He's at the Sea of Galilee, and a large crowd, the word says, is pressing in on him. They're, they're, they're in a way kind of suffocating his ability to actually proclaim and preach. And I love this about our Lord. This is absolutely brilliant. He is the God of all wisdom. So you know what he does? He garners a pulpit. And you know what he uses as his pulpit? He uses Simon Peter's boat. And it's not random that he picks Simon's boat because he's going to do an amazing work in Simon's heart. But nevertheless, he says, Simon, I need to get in your boat. The crowd is pressing in. I've got the Sea of Galilee and the shore behind me. I have nowhere else to go. Let me get in your boat. So he garners the boat as his pulpit. And then he says, uh, Simon, push out into the water a little bit. And I think this is as well brilliant. In a way, Jesus not only develops and comes up with a pulpit, but he's now going to have a natural sound system, which is the surface of the water. This is great. Christ knows as the creator of sound waves and the creator of water that water particles are packed in more densely than air particles. Thus, the energy the sound waves carry is transported faster over calm water, and therefore, it produces an amplification effect. Now, I just witnessed this three weeks ago up in the Sierras. My son was fishing. I think Renee was there. We were up on Silver Lake, it was calm, and there were a few other fishermen on the shore, but nobody nearby us. And so as we're waiting patiently for the fish to bite the little floating worm, I overhear this conversation that sounds like it's happening right next to me. And I look over, and there's nobody there. And then I scan out way out over the lake, and at the other end of the lake are two fishermen in a boat having a conversation about what bait to use. And I heard them as if they were right next to me because the sound was bouncing and skimming off the water. And so we have our Lord in Simon's boat. He's sitting down and he is now proclaiming the gospel, the word from Simon's boat. Now we have two other accounts of this. We have Matthew covers this story and also Mark. In Matthew's account in chapter 4, he's, he writes down that Jesus is preaching this statement. He is preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
And he's fulfilling Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 42 because it says that the light will come to the Gentiles. And that light is the Lord Jesus, and he's preaching repent and believe. In Mark's account, Mark 1, 14 through 20, he says this, that Jesus Christ is proclaiming the gospel of God. Okay? Jesus Christ is proclaiming the gospel of God. Now, I came across an article this week in, I don't know if you guys read this, Table Talk. It's a great devotional. There's articles in there. There's daily devotionals. It's from Ligonier Ministries, the ministry of R.C. Sproul. And I came across this article called, Because Words Are Necessary. And this is from a pastor, Peter Andras Zabo, and he's from Hungary. Julius, he might be a distant relative, okay? <laughs> if I get this wrong, will you help interpret? I'm not going to read it in, in that language. Uh, the language of Hungary. Hungarian, very good. All right, thank you. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you for your help. This is what he writes about the preaching of the gospel in verbal form. In our Western world, Bibles are all around us, but most of them are unopened and unread. Even well-meaning Christians think that in evangelism, we need to be sparing with the use of the Bible and show the gospel's message with our lives instead. Think of the popular phrase that catches this sentiment. Quote, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. It is intended at least to emphasize that our words and deeds should be linked together. We should not preach one thing and do another, but we must live by the words that we say. And this is all true. The saying, however, is often used to mean more than that. It states that there are two different ways to preach the gospel, by our lives and by our lips, suggesting that the words are not always necessary to communicate the gospel. How shall we think about this? First, this flies, or this thought flies in the face of the common teaching of the Bible. The Greek word from which the word evangelism comes means this, to proclaim, to announce, and tell the gospel message. Thus, not surprisingly, we find that the Christian life from beginning to end grows out of the word of God. Peter assures us in 1 Peter 1.23, you have been born again through the living and abiding word of God. Paul also tells us that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, Romans 10.17. Through the hearing of the word of God, we are regenerated and given faith. Thus, words are indispensable for the creation and maturation of new life in Christ. This teaching is confirmed by the example of the early Christians in Antioch. They weren't apostles. They were ordinary Christians whose names we don't even know. But we know that they had a burden for their unbelieving pagan neighbors. And what was their missionary strategy? Quote, on coming to Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Acts chapter 11, verse 20. For them, there was no evangelism without words. To live according to the word is needed, but it is not enough. We must tell the words of life as well. 
And he drives this point home with this. So please pay attention. This is so good. I'm reading this because he can say it better than I can. What greater example might we have than that of the Lord Jesus? Mark chapter 1 verse 15 records that the Lord Jesus' ministry started with a clear message. Quote, repent and believe the gospel. Then we read how he showed compassion and mercy by healing the the diseased and casting out demons. Yet when the fame of his power and good deeds started to rise, he told Peter, quote, let us go on to the next towns that I, I may preach there. Also for that is why I came. Remember, this is so important. Remember, this is Jesus speaking the eternal Son of God, in whom the fullness of God was well pleased to dwell. He became flesh, dwelt among us, and was full of grace and truth. If there was ever one who could preach by his perfect life, it was the Lord Jesus. Yet, even he, the eternal Logos, said that his mission was to preach the gospel, to proclaim it by words, How then could anyone say that words are unnecessary? We have Romans chapter 10, verse 14, to back this up. Romans 10 says this, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without some preaching, someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, the Lord who has believed, Lord who has believed what, has, uh, what he has heard from us. Verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Let me ask you a very important question. Do you know the gospel? I'm talking to you Christians here. Do you know the gospel well enough that you can articulate it? I do this with the students in student ministry to help help them as we practice. I say, let's say that there's a family member in in your family, obviously, who is very sick, they're dying, and they only have hours to live. And you go and visit them, and they say to you, I want to be saved. What must I do? What do I need to know? What does he or she need to know to be saved? What is the content of the gospel? What is needed to be shared so that that heart can be regenerated and that person can be uh, saved? Can you articulate the gospel? Well, I have a passage that you can memorize today, okay? This would be a great passage. There's many of them, okay? But I'll just give you this one. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is such a great text. Fathers, take this home. Fathers and and mothers, and have your kids memorize this, work on this. This is such a great text. This is uh, the Apostle Paul. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, but I'll start with verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, 
and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance. This is like the most important thing Paul could do. And that is this. I'm going to deliver that which I received. And here's the gospel. This is all you need to know. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance to the scriptures. That's it. That's the gospel. So you could sit with that person and, and say, look, Christ died for our sins. Who is Christ? Well, he's the son of God. He came and lived a perfect life. For 33 years, he never sinned once. He was the son of God, holy and perfect. And you know why he came? He came to die. You know why he had to die? Because we as sinners will die in our sins. And if we don't put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we will be condemned from, by that holy God for all eternity. Today, if you're a sinner here today, which you are and I am as well, and you have not put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then one day you will stand before God and you will be held accountable for your life. And God in His holiness and righteousness as a righteous judge will have to punish guilty sinners. That's why Jesus came to die, to be able to take the place of guilty sinners, to be our substitute. Yes, we deserve hell and God's wrath, but Jesus, God's holy son, stepped into our place, took our place, and all of God's wrath was poured on him. And then we received all of his righteousness imputed to us, an alien righteousness outside of ourselves, given to us so that when we put our faith in him, we are now made new. We are forgiven. Every sin that's ever been committed and will be committed has been taken care of by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Jesus came and died for sinners. Now, I would encourage husbands and wives, let's say you don't have children yet, although our church is doing really well in that uh, we have several of you that are pregnant right now. It's awesome. But you should practice sharing the gospel with one another. You should do role-playing. It could be a lot of fun. Dads, what a great devotional to do after dinner. You could play like you're the one that's on your deathbed and you say to your kids, what do I need to know to be saved? And let them go for it and work on the gospel with them because you have to articulate it for people to be saved. They have to hear about the Lord Jesus. There's no other way to be saved except by the preaching and the sharing of the word. So number one, salvation starts with God. Number two, salvation comes by hearing the gospel and Christ spent all of his ministry preaching. Number three, salvation demonstrates the power and the glory of Christ. Salvation, when a sinner turns to Jesus and gets saved, it is all about the power and glory of Christ, not about the one who's dispensing the good news. Look at this interaction in Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 4. And when he had finished preaching or speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and I took in nothing, but at your word I will let down my net, the nets. 
And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when uh, Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Salvation, and I believe this is when Simon Peter gets saved, is all about the glory of Christ. This is all about giving Christ glory. It's all about him. So here we have Jesus the preacher, this lowly carpenter. He comes and tells Simon. He enters into Simon's workplace, which is the lake, and gets into his boat. So he's actually doing workplace evangelism. Okay, he's stepping into Simon's world and his business. This carpenter, and he says, let's go fishing. And this Jesus who's born in Bethlehem, who's from Nazareth, is now asking Simon, Andrew, James, and John to go fishing in the middle of the day. To go fishing in the middle of the day. Now this is kind of crazy. Uh, If you are wanting to develop your fishing skills, you are not gonna go to Steve and Kim. Where is Steven? Okay. Yeah, there he is. You're not going to go to him for fishing advice. Why? Because he's a carpenter. He really is. He's a woodworker. Okay. Instead, you're going to go to Michael Fish. Okay. Right here. Who, though his name is very fitting for this role that I'm describing, he's actually an excellent fisherman. And I know because he and I have fished at Lake Chelan together and caught many a fish and I won't tell the rest of the story. But nevertheless, you're not going to go to Stephen Kim the carpenter for any fishing advice, let alone are you going to have someone who's not at all involved in your trade, excuse me, come and tell you how to do your business. And yet, that's what Jesus does. And Simon's response is interesting. He says, Master, Now, that word master is not the word Lord. He's not calling Jesus Lord here. He's calling him master, which is Luke's constant substitute for the term rabbi, which means teacher. So I do not believe that Simon here sees Jesus as his Lord. He says, master, we toiled all night and we caught nothing. We are tired. We are exhausted. We have got no sleep the last 24 hours. And by the way, carpenter, you don't fish in the middle of the day. You know why? Because the water warms up. And as the top of the the lake heats up, you know what the fish do? They swim down to the bottom of the lake where the water was cooler. Don't you know this? Why are you telling me what to do here? Nevertheless, he puts out the nets. He puts down the nets. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And in a moment, this lowly carpenter, this rabbi, this teacher reveals that he is truly God Almighty. For fish from all over the Sea of Galilee rushed Simon Peter's nets. And not only did they rush into his nets, they're rushing into uh, James and John's nets to the degree that the nets start to burst. And as they're trying to pull these nets on into the boat, the boats are starting to fill up. And I can only imagine what the Lord is doing here because he's in the boat with Simon. He's probably helping as well. 
But he's doing a, an amazing teaching moment here with Simon. And as they're bringing in all these fish, and, and Jesus is blowing them away with this incredible catch, we see that Simon gets broken. God brings him low. He brings him down. This is amazing. Jesus uses an amazing catch of fish to break the hard heart of Simon Peter to get him ready to be his fisher of men. This was not a normal catch. This wasn't even a once in a life, uh, once in a season catch. It wasn't a once in a lifetime catch. It was so far beyond any real possibility that Simon and all the others were there realized this was an act of God. And this Jesus is superhuman. This is the Son of God. It was such a massive catch that, as we already saw, the nets were breaking. He's signaling for more help. The boats are filling up to such a degree that they're starting to sink. And immediately, Simon collapses down to Jesus' knees, and he says this, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. That's an amazing statement. So clearly, earlier in the interchange with Christ, he was prideful. And he says, depart from me. Now, why does he say, depart from me? Why doesn't he just depart? Well, one, he's in a boat. I doubt that he wants to swim as fast as he can away. I think what's going on here is that in that moment, he is incapacitated. He is spiritually and emotionally and physically incapacitated by the realization that this is truly the Son of God and I am a sinful man. We see in this interchange utter brokenness of Peter. He collapses physically and his pride is also collapsing as well. The preacher Ironside says this, the thing that is most natural to the heart of man is most, that it, and is most hateful to God is pride. So here we see utter brokenness. Then we see a confession of sin. We see Peter confessing his sin in the presence of holiness. Right then and there, he felt and owed or owned that he was full of sin. There was a realization that he was a sinner and that this truly is the Son of God because he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He uses a different name. And here's the point. In the presence of holy God, sinful man trembles. There's no other way into the kingdom, if you will. There's no way for sinners to enter into a relationship with God while they are still in love with their sin. And so every person needs to be broken down. They need to come to the understanding that they are a sinful sinner before God. And you have to own that sin before God. You have to realize by the power of the Spirit that you are a woeful sinner. You are on your way to hell. And there's no way that you can get right with God except to believe on His Holy Son, the Lord Jesus. In the presence of holy God, sinful man trembles. And we see this all throughout the Bible. Job chapter 42, at the end of his life, he says this, But my eye sees you, O Lord. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. 
Isaiah 6, 5, when he has the vision of God's throne and the holy angels praising him, saying, holy, holy, holy. You know what happens to Isaiah in that moment? And he's a prophet of God. He says, woe is me, for I am ruined. I am undone. He comes to the end of himself, up and against the holy God. And then we have the apostle John, a follower of Jesus. Revelation 1.17, he sees the Son of Man, and immediately he falls like a dead man, and he collapses. Calvin says this about the statement, depart from me. Although men are earnest in seeking the presence of God, yet as soon as God appears, they must be struck with terror and almost rendered lifeless by the dread and alarm until he administers consolation. They have the best reason for calling earnestly on God because they cannot avoid feeling that they are miserable while he is absent from them. And on the other hand, his presence is appalling because they begin to feel that they are nothing and that they are overpowered by an immense mass of evils. In this manner, Peter views Christ with reverence in the miracle and yet is so overawed by his majesty that he does all that he can to avoid his presence. And hence we see that it is natural to all men to tremble at the presence of God. And this is of advantage to us in order to humble any foolish confidence or pride that may be in us. Peter was a prideful man, and that pride had to be removed. And Jesus uses an amazing miracle catch of fish to do it. So we see... Simon's response to this miracle. Now we're going to see our Lord's response to Simon. And this truly is amazing. Verse 10. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Jesus says, Fear not. That word fear there is phobio. That's where we get the word phobia. And it means terror. It means fright. It means to be terrified. And he is saying, do not be terrified. Do not be frightened. Now the word phobos is different. It's a godly fear. This is the kind of fear that Christians have once they've been born again. They they are not terrified in the sense of being afraid of God because now God is their father. But the fear changes, like it says in Psalm 133 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark my iniquities, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. And that kind of fear is to be in awe of God and to revere Him. But the kind of fear that has taken place in Simon's life is terror. The fear of punishment and the fear of banishment and the fear of death. And Jesus in a simple little statement, looks down at him and says, fear not. And the power of the creator who spoke the whole world into existence in one simple statement brings perfect peace to Simon. Because in that statement flowed, I forgive you. Mercy is now yours. Let me shower you with grace. Let me shower you with my love. And his kindness leads Peter to himself. 
With a word, Christ created the universe. And with a word, the creator, the Lord of creation says to Simon, fear not. Jesus could never depart from this poor, broken-hearted sinner. It is his richest joy to pour the healing balm of his love and grace into a wounded soul. It was his delight to say to Peter, who is a sinful man, fear not. Jesus had the right to punish Peter instantly for his pride, and he did not. Instead, he offers forgiveness and says, fear not. Now, let me ask you a question. Which would you rather hear from the Lord? Which would you rather hear from the creator of the universe when you come into his presence? Would you rather hear him say, fear not? You have followed me. You are saved. You are safe from your sins. Or if you die in your sins, you'll hear him say this, depart from me for I never knew you. Depart from me. Every sinner that dies in their sins is immediately banished from the presence of God and sent to hell under his wrath and punishment, ultimately for the lake of fire. Yes, you are separated from God, but the Bible says that it's before the face of God as well. So you will be hounded by the righteous judge for all eternity for your sin, separated from him forever and ever. And you have the opportunity, even today, right now, to turn from your sins, put your faith in him, so that he will say to you, fear not. But if you reject his call and die in your sins, you will hear, depart from me, for I never knew you. This is amazing that Christ, in his grace and mercy and his forgiveness, would say, fear not, to this wicked man, Simon. One commentator says this, here Christ relieves the mind of Peter by a mild and friendly reply, saying to him, fear not. Thus, Christ sinks his own people into the grave that he may afterwards raise them to life, which is what he did with Simon Peter. So we saw Simon's response to Jesus. Now we see Christ's amazing, astonishing response to Simon Peter. Now how do all the fishermen respond to this event? It says in verse 11, look down. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. They left everything. Now in Matthew's account and Mark's account, it just says Jesus saw them and called them and they left. But in Luke's story, you get the backstory. You see that this amazing miracle, which showed the glory of Jesus, it produced in their hearts this amazing desire to follow him and they are with him to this day. They left everything to follow Christ. They left their livelihoods. They left their boats, their gear. They left behind the most lucrative catch of all time in the Sea of Galilee, tens of thousands of dollars in fish, and they left it all. They left the fishing of fish to go be fishers of men for Christ. And you know what's amazing? Four years after this moment in Simon Peter's life, do you know what Simon does four years later? Pentecost. He gets up and he preaches the gospel. 
And we have the greatest catch of sinners in all of the Bible. And Christ uses Simon to catch 3,000 souls for him. Absolutely amazing. Our last point, and we'll end with this. Salvation is the divine work of God through the agency of man. It's the divine work of God through the agency of man. Do not fear, believers at Tri-City. It's God that saves, not us. We do not have to worry about whether or not people receive the gospel and believe or reject. That's not our job. We don't need to fear that. We know that God is the one that saves. He's the one that opens up hearts. Remember, in the, in the story, who produced the catch? Was it the professional fisherman and all his buddies that produced the catch? No, it was the Lord Jesus who produced the catch. And the second point is this. <clears throat> Although it's God that saves, he has ordained that his precious gospel be shared by us. He has employed us in his kingdom work of saving souls. And our only responsibility is to share the good news. Do not fear, Christian. This is God's design. You can rest. You can rest in the fact that if I share the gospel today, it's not on me. It's on the Lord Jesus to save. But it is on me to share the good news. And I don't need to fear how it goes. I'm just going to step out in faith and do what God's called me to do and do what he's designed me to do, which is to share the good news. God has given us the exact means for catching lost sinners. It is the preaching of the gospel. We are saved so that we can save others through Christ. And by Jesus' sovereign power, men are saved through us who share the good news. Do you know the gospel? Can you articulate it? Do you have lost loved ones, lost neighbors, lost colleagues? By the way, workplace evangelism, do it on your breaks and at lunch, <clears throat> not while you're supposed to be producing. You know, my father-in-law was led to the Lord by three businessmen that had a Bible study at lunch, and they just invited him. And he got saved. We are called to be fishers of men, Tri-City. I pray that that is a flavor at our church, that it's a characteristic of our church, that collectively we do things for evangelism, for the glory of Christ in our community, and that we do it individually, stepping out in faith because we do not fear. I got an opportunity this week to share with a young man named Evan. And I've gotten to know Evan by playing basketball at the gym. And uh, <clears throat> that particular day I had lost, so I was a little frustrated, so I was sitting down waiting for the next game. And all of a sudden I'm watching Evan play. And the Lord pricks my heart to share with Evan. And not only did he give me the desire to share with Evan, Evan, after he lost, came and sat right down next to me. And I'm like, okay, this is really a sign. I need to obey. And I go, Evan, how's it going? How you doing? I know you haven't been well lately. I had known that he'd been sick. And he goes, yeah, I'm, 
I don't have much strength. I've got to get some blood work done. He's like 23. And I say, hey, man, I'll, I'll pray for you for that. Evan, do you have any spiritual beliefs? Ah, oh, yeah, I believe there's a God, but I don't think he's noble. And then I just deluge of the gospel with him. It was so, it was so of the Lord. I, I left the gym so thankful that I got to share with Evan so much joy. And as I'm driving home, I, I just was gripped with this notion that most likely somebody has been praying for Evan. And by obeying the Lord, the Lord used me to share with him. And I only share that because I know that my brother is not a believer, and I can't be with him to share the gospel. And I have been praying, Lord, bring somebody into his life, please, that will share the gospel with him, that will love him and care for him. Show him the gospel, but preach the gospel. And likewise, I want us to be a people that obey the calling of Christ to open our mouths and share the good news, pray for the lost, care for the lost, do whatever we can as a body of believers to be lights in this community for the Lord Jesus and be his kingdom workers, fishers of men. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for this text. Uh, what a great story. This is how you call the disciples. Thank you for the amazing power that you put on display, but then your amazing, astonishing kindness towards Simon, that you would forgive him and that you would call him to be a fisher of men. Oh Lord, that's what we bring. We bring the power of Christ for the gospel is the power of God to lead men to, to, to the Lord. And, and we don't need to fear. We don't need to fear. It's you that do the work, and you've designed us to be the ones that bring it. So we can rest in that. Lord, give us faith to be lights for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.